Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their books at a Warren Public Library. I have had the opportunity to speak at a number of libraries thus far, but this one's really meaningful to me. So I am from here. I grew up right here in Warren many, many years ago, a long time ago. I, I'm just going to think about what order I'm going to start in. So I'm holding this, and I'm, I'm holding this. I'm navigating these things. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the book. I'll talk a little bit about my life, because the book really is about the life of a woman, a particular woman, but I think it's really, in many ways, reflective of a woman's life. And I've thought more about it. I think it can also be seen as reflective of a, a male life, perhaps. I tend to think that, that women's lives are often episodic. Many of us have different chapters to our lives. I think historically, men's lives were less so. You know, a man would start at his executive job on Madison Avenue and maybe work that job till he got his gold watch, or he would start at a factory and work that job until his retirement. So men were more accustomed to that. But women, I think, have been accustomed for a long time to having different chapters in our lives, whether we went to college or not, whatever our first jobs were, the chapter of marriage and children, which many women work right along when they do that, some women do not. And then the next chapter, which is the chapter I happen to be in now. So I am what is referred to as a debut novelist. So I like to say I am a mature debutante. I am <laughs> the mature debutante. I don't think I could have written a novel in my youth. I certainly did a lot of writing. I certainly have the, always had the ability to write a sentence, to structure a paragraph or a short story. But this wealth of ideas for me, this really creative flow of ideas, has heightened in this chapter, which began more or less in my mid-50s. So Finding Mrs. Ford is a thriller. You could call it a psychological thriller. If you're a movie person, you could call it a Hitchcockian thriller. It is not a scary book, but it has its, its level of suspense. It takes place in two places and times. It begins in 2014 in the beautiful seaside village of Watch Hill, Rhode Island, which is obviously in New England. It's on the Atlantic Ocean. And it begins with the FBI showing up at the beautiful house of a woman by the name of Susan Ford. She is a woman of a certain age. She's precisely 56. And they have come to ask her about an Iraqi Chaldean man. You're all from Detroit. You know what a Chaldean is. Nobody from anywhere else knows what a Chaldean is. I have to explain, but I'm going to state the obvious. The Chaldeans are Catholics from the north of Iraq. They are from the region right around Mosul. And in August of 2014, when the FBI arrives at the door of Susan Ford, it, it's, it's right at the moment when ISIS is marching into Mosul, and they're slaughtering quite a lot of people, Chaldeans among them. 
So that is the moment when the FBI comes to her house to ask her about this man, Sammy Fakuri, and she says she does not know him. And these two uh, agents from the FBI say, well, that's kind of interesting because we just picked him up getting off a plane from Baghdad to Boston and in a car on his way to your house. So already you're wondering, is she a liar? Uh, it's not a spoiler to say she is a liar. So then you go back to 1979, Warren, Michigan, right here. She is a college student. It is the summer before her senior year. She is home in Warren, and her family life is very sad. Her mother has died, her father is old and sick and dying, and she's home for this last summer, and she takes a very nice, respectable job at a very nice, respectable ladies' boutique called Winkleman's. So I have to explain to people if that was really a, a really beautiful store in the Detroit metropolitan area in the years before there were all these national chains. We didn't really have national chains. So young Susan takes this lovely job and shows up for work her first day. and. She is almost hit in her car by another car driven by a glamorous, gorgeous, charismatic girl named Annie Nelson. So Annie is one of those girls who is just irresistible to men and women alike. And I don't really mean sexually. I mean just in her, kind of the sway of her personality, the effect that she has on other people. And Susan is no exception to the rule. She is dazzled by Annie. Annie's lively, exuberant, and a fair degree of, of wild. So about a month into their job lives at Winkleman's, and it's the one in Tech Plaza, and they definitely go to Sanders for cream puffs, etc. Annie proposes that they meet at a different place. They meet for a drink and she lays down her big idea, and it is the following, that they quit their very nice, respectable jobs, and they go to a discotheque, which is pretty seedy, closer to the edge of Detroit, and they work as cocktail waitresses. Now, I can tell you, mothers in the room, daughters in the room, whoever you are, this is a poor life choice for Susan <laughs> to make. She should not do this. But she does it. Um, and Susan knows it is a poor life choice, but she makes it anyway. She follows the dazzling Annie into this job. The girls show up in their very skimpy cocktail waitress out outfits, and they're like sort of an abbreviated version of a man's suit. They have these um, dance pants and a white black and a white shirt, and a necktie, and a black vest. So it looks like a suit with just no pants attached. So they go in and they work in this place. This discotheque is run by three Italian-American brothers, and there are a lot of Italian-American guys who hang out, and Iraqi Chaldean men who hang out there. So that is the setup of the book. What happened to Susan, maybe with Sammy, in the summer of 1979, Sammy is our Chaldean man, Sammy Fakuri. Why is Sammy looking for her 35 years later, which is a long period of time, 
And why on earth would she lie about it? Why not just say, yes, I knew him back in the day? So that's the setup. I think of the structure of the book as being that of a roller coaster. The book begins with a gunshot, which Susan, the mature Susan, who is a woman of wealth and position, she's sitting by the edge of the water in her nice little Adirondack chair with her dogs at her feet, and this gunshot goes off and she jumps out of her skin. And you think, well, she's a little nervous. Why would she be so nervous? Because you know very soon on, it's just that, you know, a lot of yacht clubs fire a gun in the morning and they fire, or it's more of a cannon, and they fire it at night when the flag goes up and when the flag goes down. And she obviously should know this. She lives right there. So you, you get the feeling that maybe she's a liar and she's awfully touchy. She's kind of white knuckling her life. Again, she has wealth, she has position, but she is trying very hard to keep the lid on this life, to keep it under control. And the arrival of the FBI is the signal that it is all about to unravel. So it goes back and forth between 1979 in this area and 2014 in this resort community of Watch Hill and New York City. It reaches a crescendo in the middle of the book where something happens, and then the story kind of starts all over again, so you get it from another perspective. Going back to this idea of a woman's life being episodic, and who are people really? I think in a psychological thriller, you're examining the idea of who a person is, and what are they revealing to you, and what are they concealing from you? And I would say that most people conceal something. Often it's very minor things, but you don't generally know everything about anyone. So Susan Ford is a woman who's concealing a lot. So going back, we can talk a little bit about this idea of identity. I think, as I said, a woman's life is episodic. So a lot of you know me, some of you don't. I'll tell you a little bit about my life and how I got to this point. So I grew up here and went to college in Ohio. I went to a very small women's college that was the kind of school where I could major in French and Italian, but I was a dance minor, so I did a lot of dancing, and I was able to act in theater productions because the school was so small. So I was there until the... Right before my senior year, I had enough credits to graduate because I was always in a hurry, except for one gym course. So I had to go back fall of my senior year to take golf. I've never golfed since, but I did golf that semester. And I took some other courses. But right before that last semester, I was doing uh, summer stock theater in Cleveland, Ohio, and a movie came to town. It was a movie with Frank Langella and Tom Hulse, if you remember. Well, Frank Langella is still very much in the flow of his career. He's continued to act, but Tom Hulse played uh, Mozart in Amadeus, if you remember him. So this movie came to town and they were looking for dancers, background dancers. And I thought, well, I'll go down and audition for that. And I was hired and the choreographer was very, very friendly. And he took me to a museum, he took me out to lunch, and he kept saying, you need to come to New York and audition for me. I am the choreographer of the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut. 
Well, I'm from here. I didn't really know what that was, but it sounded impressive. So we did this movie. I did my one little dance number with a bunch of girls. I got to wear a Bob Mackie dress. Does anybody remember those? My Bob Mackie dress was nothing like what Cher wore. Mine was, we were doing this number called In Old New York. So we had these little Dutch girl costumes, and it was like the Amish version of a dirndl. It was hyper-conservative and very covered up, but, but cute. So anyway, I finished college in December of that year. I came back here. I was working at an office right up on Van Dyke, one of those high-rise buildings. I don't quite remember which one. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was thinking, well, maybe I should go to graduate school. I, I, I don't know. And I went to an independent bookstore, which I think was on Hoover Road and maybe 11 Mile Road. Was there a bookstore right around there? Animal, a strip mall or something? So I picked up a copy of Variety, which is the theatrical publication. And I was flipping through this, and in the back of it was a notice that this man, his name was Dan Serretta. He was holding auditions for the summer season of the Goodspeed Opera House, and these auditions were at the Minskoff Theater on Broadway in New York City. And because I was young and very naive, I thought, well, I'll just pick up the phone and call the Minskoff Theater in New York City which I did. So uh, one man answered the phone, and he was very cool toward me. And he explained that Mr. Serretta was in auditions right now, and he could not come to the phone. I said, oh, well, will you just tell him I'm on the phone? So a long, long, long time went by. Finally, this man comes to the phone. And if the first man was cool, Mr. Serretta, I would say, was frosty. And he said, <laughs> with some nervousness, hello. I said, hi, this is Deborah Goodrich. You know, I danced for you this summer in that movie, and you said I should come and audition for you for the Goodspeed Opera House. He said, ah, uh, yeah, ah. Uh. <laughs> I can't guarantee you anything. I said, no, no, that's okay. So I moved to New York City the next day, which was Valentine's Day, 1980. Now, people think that I moved like Grown-ups move. I didn't move like a grown-up. I put clothes in a suitcase, and I went to stay with the widow of a professor from my college who was living in New York. She was there, and I auditioned at the Minskoff Theater in New York City, and do you think I got that role? No, I did not. He did not cast me. But I spent about a year auditioning for every musical on Broadway, and there were a lot of them. There were dance studios all up and down Broadway at the time. I'm sure they're still there. They were on the second floor above all the retail and theaters. So I would dance every day, take classes. I was working in a restaurant, and I auditioned for everything and got close. I auditioned for Agnes DeMille herself, if you remember her. And so she's sitting there. I get to the final, final, final audition, which is many. And she's sitting there looking at me, and she has this big clipboard. And at a certain point, she does this huge X as she's looking at me. So I thought, all right, maybe I'm not good enough as a dancer. I mean, I was pretty good. I got close to these things. But I think it was evident that I was not good enough. And I absorbed that lesson. And because I had been interested in acting, a little bit throughout college. 
I thought, before I figure out what I'm going to do with my life, I will give that a try. And that was a game changer. So that went well. I started doing commercials right away. I got an agent. I did everything from Coca-Cola to Clearasil to Weight Watchers frozen desserts to shower to shower powder. I did that with Meg Ryan. We played wax in the army. Um, a failed product called bacon flavored Cheetos. They were not good. They were really not good. There was a reason they failed. And that was going along and I started auditioning for a lot of soap operas. That was a real bread and butter business of acting in New York at the time. All the New York soaps are gone now. There are three soaps left. They're all in California, General Hospital, Young and the Restless, and Bold and the Beautiful. Every single one from New York is gone. But after one year, I was offered a contract to play Silver Kane, who was Erica Kane's evil, dastardly, crazy, troubled, bad, 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 bad sister. And I thought that would change my life forever. I thought I would be on that soap opera forever. That, I mean, that's what Susan Lucci did. So it was a game changer in my life. But going back to this idea of lives being episodic, I was on that show in 82 and 83. And I played, like I said, the, the storyline was based, did anybody see All About Eve movie with Betty Davis and Ann Baxter? They took my storyline from that movie. So Susan Lucci, Erica, was um, not an actress in this case. She was a spokesmodel, which was the name of her job. And I came to town as her sister, and I was plain, and I became more glamorous, and then tried to dismantle her life and make her crazy. So that was, it was a great opportunity, but it was not fun. Playing a really troubled character five days a week, 52 weeks a year, 12 hours a day, is psychologically exhausting because you're always steeped in this character. So we would work 12 hours a day and then go home and study our scripts. So by the time I was written out of that, I, I went to prison. I turned out not to be Silver Kane. I turned out to be some other character, which I found out two weeks before I was off the show. And sometimes people will write about me as playing this other character name. Who watched Game of Thrones? So Jon Snow is Jon Snow, right? He's not whoever he turned out to be at the end. You don't think about him as that. So that was kind of what happened with my character. So I turned out to be somebody else. Anyway, that was the end of that. And several months after that, Paramount Pictures flew me to Los Angeles to screen test for a pilot with the actor Christopher Lloyd. He played, um, he was in Back to the Future, he was in Taxi, the guy with the big white hair. So I flew out there, I got that thing, I did that thing, and I realized Los Angeles at that time, and I am very far out of that business, oddly circling back in another way through writing, but, um, in LA, it turned out I could, I could get maybe five auditions a day, whereas in New York, I maybe got five auditions a month. So if you think about anything you're trying to do in life as having a little bit of a numbers game to it, five a day versus five a month is a very different ratio. So I moved to LA and I worked, 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 worked. One of the things I did 
uh, for you younger people or anybody who watches TV now, Ted Bundy is back in the consciousness. They just did a whole story about Ted Bundy. I did the movie with Mark Harmon where Mark played Bundy and I played the woman who married him. He, there was a, a young woman who married him who believed he was in, innocent, followed him to his last murder trial in Florida and ended up married to him. Going back to this idea of what people conceal what they reveal. So I did that until I got married and had children and continued to work a bit, but it was really losing its charm. In Los Angeles at the time, and this was before cell phones, before computers, home computers and everything, I would get a call at six o'clock in the evening to drive one hour to pick up a script. And if you've raised children, you know that six o'clock in the evening is kind of the witching hour with little ones. You're doing dinner, bath, bed. So it, it wasn't so much fun anymore. I was questioning the fact that I was killing myself auditioning for movies that I actually wouldn't pay money to go see. And I thought something is wrong with this picture. And the next chapter kind of intervened. My first husband, who grew up in Paris, had an opportunity to move there and help his mother with a project. And I thought, well, this, this could be really interesting. So we packed up, moved to Paris, and a weird door opened for me. I was hired by a French film studio called Canal Plus. And they were at that moment putting a lot of money into English language films. So they needed native English speaking readers. So all film studios have readers uh, on their payroll. It's a freelance job. You read the material. It might be a novel that they're considering uh, developing into a screenplay. It might be a screenplay. So you read it, you synopsize it, maybe five pages of a synopsis, and then you do a page of coverage for them, which basically means what works, what doesn't work in the story and the structure and the characters and all that stuff. And then in the movie business, they always want to know what is this like? Is this like, you know, Star Wars meets Gone with the Wind? Is this like, um, I don't know, this and that. So that was a pretty cool job. My children were little. I could go to the park in Paris and read while my kids were playing. It was not lucrative. I made maybe $60, I think, per piece, you know. And But I started to let go of acting and think about this more seriously. Then my first husband was hired by Julia Roberts to run her development company. A lot of actors have development deals with studios. And what, what that is is the studio pays for some basic office expenses, somebody to run it, and the studio has the right of first refusal over whatever it is the actor wants to option. So they might pay a little bit of money to buy a script and then put it in development, and the studio has the first right to say yes or no. So we came back to the States. Julia wanted to live in New York. We moved to New York, and then let's think about who people are what they reveal, what they conceal. I was hired by Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> I was the story editor at Miramax Films. That was an incredible job. It was really my writing school. 
Miramax films in the 90s got the best of everything crossing the threshold. The best of the written word came in our door and I got to edit incredible material. But back to Harvey. So I didn't know about his sex life. And I watched that all very closely because many people in the industry were saying everybody knew, everybody knew. But I would argue people compartmentalize. You think back, the whole scandal of pedophile priests in the Catholic Church. Many people in this room grew up Catholic. Some people knew about that. Certainly the poor victims knew about it. But many people didn't know. You don't always know these things. So Harvey, I did not have that experience of him. I don't doubt it. I don't question the women at all. I'm, I'm making no comment about that. I really cast no doubt on what they say. But I think, you know, this idea that people compartmentalize, it's a fascinating aspect of life. I think back to the woman I played in this Ted Bundy movie with Mark Harmon. She believed he was innocent. She married him. So I think people make inter interesting life choices based on their perceptions of others, and they don't always have all the information. So I worked at Miramax in the 90s. It was an incredible place to work. It was very challenging though. My children were small. They were now in elementary school. And my weekend read would often be 12 screenplays and a novel. It's a lot to read. I'm not a speed reader at all. So I was always, I felt like I was in finals week of college, 365 days a year. And I did it for several years until the point where I thought, I'm doing a disservice to everyone. It cost me more than I made at Miramax to pay a babysitter and everything. And I, as thrilling as the job was, there was something out of balance with the picture. So I left that job and my first husband and I moved out of the city. He was were still working for Julia. We were living in the suburbs. And after a few years, he left. I, I went through a pretty traumatic divorce. And going back to this idea of a woman's life being episodic, I might have told you at that point that my life was over. My mother's here. I was in bad shape, right? It was bad. So I did not know what I would do or where I would go, but I had an idea to write a screenplay in the middle of all this. I woke up in the middle of the night and had this idea of a black comedy. Picture Othello, but comedic. Picture an actress like Kristen Wiig in Bridesmaids. You know how badly she behaved, but you liked her anyway? So the story was that there's a woman who believes her husband is leaving her, and you don't know if he's being unfaithful or not. You don't know if she's crazy or not, but she decides rather than being this cast-off reject throwaway, she'll kill him. So she goes about her process of trying to kill this husband in increasingly ridiculous ways. So I wrote that screenplay. I asked a friend of mine who was a very experienced screenwriter to help me do it, and we got a grant for it to develop it. But because my life was changing so much, I ended up meeting and marrying my second husband, and I put it on a shelf where it still sits to this day. So this new chapter of life started. I got married. Uh, my husband and I 
began a series of historic preservation projects. And we've, the first thing we did was a cinema in Stamford, Connecticut. Stamford is about an hour outside of New York, and this is a beautiful 1939 cinema that we restored and we reopened. We didn't know what we were doing, but it's been a really cool thing. We still run it. So it's an independent cinema. We show first-run independent films 365 days a year, and then we've created series. We have a French film series, an Indian film series, cult classics, which a lot of the younger people come to, uh, documentary, and then the latest one, which we actually spent a year developing, and it's curated by a friend of mine, is called The Black Lens. And I was very interested in joining this conversation about what's going on racially in the United States of America. I didn't know how to get into that conversation other than through film. So a very dear friend of mine who is an African-American woman and writer, and she was an editor at Essence and Ebony, her name's Harriet Cole, she curates this and she moderates it. So we showed three films last year. We'll show a film. First one is in October. It's a documentary about Toni Morrison. And it's just, I'm very proud of this series. I feel like we've kind of entered into this dialogue. We've showed one, shown one called Memphis Magic, which is about a style of dance in the African-American community in Memphis called Jukin. It's incredible. It's a cross between hip hop and ballet. And the young people, because it's done on the street, they wear these very thick tennis shoes. And a lot of the dance is done up on their toes. So anyway, we had the director come, a very vibrant evening. So that is one of the things I do. I run the Avon. We've restored some hotels. We've done a lot of that kind of stuff. But as we were going along, I continued to write. I belonged to different writing groups. I got a lot of encouragement about my writing. And through the Avon, I had an active writing relationship with the actor Gene Wilder. Gene lived in Stanford, the town where our cinema is. Uh, Gilda Radner had bought this beautiful colonial farmhouse. She died, she left it to Gene and he and his wife Karen lived there until his death. So in this writing correspondence we had, he said to me at a certain point, are you a writer? I think you're a writer. And I said, oh gosh, maybe, I mean, and I, you know, kind of yes. And very graciously he said, I would be honored to read something that you've written. So I sent him that screenplay. And he read it and he got back to me with very positive comments and a lot of encouragement. So for me, in this chapters of life thing, when I hit my mid-50s and my youngest child left the house, it just occurred to me that this was the moment that I could get serious about writing. I could, I had the luxury, because my husband has a successful career, I had the luxury to be able to carve out the time to write. So I started doing it. About six months in, I was sitting, having lunch with my friend Harriet Cole, the one who runs The Black Lens, who's written seven books, and she said to me very kindly, and how many days a week do you write? I said, oh Harriet, I write one day a week. And she looked at me, she said, you are never gonna finish your book writing one day a week. So I listened to Harriet. 
a lot of writers will tell you there's kind of a tyranny that you have to write at the same time every day. I can't write at the same time every day. I run the Avon. I'm very involved with this hotel that, that we restored. I have a lot of different projects. So I have time, but I don't have time at the same time. I can't write at night because I'm done. By 5.30, I'm finished. So what I would say to you if you're a writer is just know yourself. So what I've done is I go in my trusty iPhone and I chart out about three months going forward, at least three hour windows, three hours plus. I try to do it every single day. I go to a room at the far side of my house. I have a home office. I can't write in my home office. It's got everything in there. It's got the bills. It's got the phone. It's got the mess. It's got the folders. That is not conducive to writing. So I go to this room at the far end. I live on a river. It's a conservatory. And it looks straight out at the river. And it's very peaceful. And every time I sit at that table, I write. So I chart out these time slots. And for me, so I started my book five years ago. And the process was, it took about one year to have a first draft. At that point, I went to a writer's conference, which I would advise any writer to do. Because at these conferences, they have all these workshops. You can, you know, take a workshop on self-publishing, on getting an agent, on marketing your book, on every single aspect of it. And at the conference, there was the opportunity to pay extra to have a 20-minute session with an agent or a 20-minute session with an editor at a publishing house. And I thought, well, I'll do one of each. And you turn in 40 pages of your book. It has to be the first 40 pages. And then they sit with you for 20 minutes and tell you what works and what doesn't. So the editor at the publishing house was fabulous. She was constructive. She had an analogy about what I'd written thus far, which was very helpful. She said, what you have now is a layer cake. And what I would like you to think about is braided bread. And I thought, OK, I get that. I understand what that means. The agent was horrible. He was a jerk. I don't think he read my material. He sat back. He folded his arms. He was condescending. But that was helpful, too, because you do encounter people like that in life. I connected with actually the head of the conference and her number two, and they did freelance editing. So I thought, well, I'll, just, I'll hire them. I need to hire a freelance editor and see what's working and what's not. So they said, we will read it. We will get back to you in two months. We will send you two pages of notes, and that's what we will do. Two weeks later, they called me on the phone. They said, we need to meet. So I met them, and they absolutely loved the book. So I worked with them for the next year on revisions. Writing is revising, revising, revising. And at the end of that second year, I got an agent. And I got a very big agent at, oddly, a film company, CAA, which is one of the biggest film agencies in the world that has a literary department. And my agent said, you know, your writing is gorgeous. I was gobsmacked by the surprise in the middle. But will you consider bringing the book more fully into the realm of thriller? So that began the process of the next two years of revising it, submitting it, and getting rejections. The book was rejected at least 30 times. Um, why? So 
you know, there are a million reasons why editors reject books. I think the biggest reason is the editor's job is always on the line. And if you're an unknown quantity, particularly of my age, I think there is ageism in that business. And I think it's a hot and sexy story to have a 25-year-old first-time writer, and that sounds good. And, but, you know, at my age, it's... It, I mean, I don't know. I'll never know. But at the end of two years, two offers came in. We chose one, and that began this last year, which is really the business of the book, which is all of the cover design, the marketing, uh, and, and setting up this, this plan to get the book out there. The book has done really well beyond kind of what I would have thought. It was reviewed by the New York Times, by People Magazine, Kirkus Reviews, Forbes. Um, I have all these review blurbs here. And then what I'm doing now is just going out and meeting people and talking about the book. So people, um, generally speaking, there are writers in the room and people always want to know how you do it. There's also the avenue of self-publishing, which is a very viable avenue now. It is not like the old days where it was more of a vanity production to self-publish your book. A lot of very respectable books are self-published. So that has been my journey up to this point where we meet here today. Uh, and it's really an honor, like I said, to be here in Warren. And it, it's just really a pleasure to be here in Warren. Thank you. Straight from the Author has been brought to you by My Warren. To hear more podcasts like this, visit mywarren.org. Again, that's miwarren.org.